Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last episode, I talked about how 1922's March on Rome was not the automatic end of Italian liberal democracy, nor was it the automatic beginning of Italian fascist dictatorship. On today's episode, I want to talk about what the fascists did, what Mussolini did, when he came to power, and how they dealt with elections and voting that pushed them closer to the brink of full-on fascist dictatorship. And once again, the context for this is that prior to 1922, prior to the March on Rome, Italy had been consumed with strife. There were strikes, there were lockouts, there was a lot of socialism and communism. Maybe Italy was going to have its own version of the Russian Revolution. 1919 and 1920 are justly called the two red years. And then, backlash. Backlash by fascist squads roving the provinces as a kind of self-appointed police force. Fascist squads that plenty of conservatives saw as saving Italy from the red tide. Meanwhile, the government could not hold itself together. The socialists and the Catholics, both anti-fascist, couldn't cooperate together. They couldn't form a coalition. Nothing seemed to really function. And then, in October of 1922, well, the fascists, they get to Rome. They demand a new prime minister, and Mussolini is a new force in Italian politics. He was certainly different from the socialists and the liberals who, prior to this, had not been able to work together. He was also a figure who could appeal to conservatives who, looking at Italy's fallen state after World War I, had a desire to place their country into a, into a position of prominence. Maybe, just maybe, 1922 is a new beginning for Italy. There'd been all this strife and socialism and conflict. Maybe things will be different now. Maybe now that Mussolini was in power, all of this chaos, disunity, and violence would come to an end. Well, the good news is that things are going to be different now. The bad news is that the chaos, disunity, and violence is just beginning. After he came to power, Mussolini, he was a prime minister, he appointed himself to a few cabinet positions, and he and the fascists began reforming how Italy would apportion seats in parliament. That gridlock had prevented workable coalitions from happening, and the government from getting anything done, and he sought to change that. One of the most potentially powerful things Mussolini did after the March on Rome, after becoming prime minister, was the 1923 Acerbo Law. That law radically changed how Italian elections would play out. Instead of a party getting seats in parliament according to how many people voted for them, the Acerbo Law gave two-thirds of the seats in parliament to the party that got the most votes, provided they got a minimum of 25%. So, Let's say a party got only 25% of the vote, but all the other parties, they got, say, 10, 12, 3% of the vote, and that 25% was the biggest vote-getter? Well, guess what? That party that had 25%, they get a huge majority of seats in the legislature, even though a huge majority of people voted against them. This assured that even if the fascists didn't get a majority they could still run the legislature as they pleased. They could still make the laws they wanted. Other parties would be apportioned the remaining third of the seats in Parliament proportionally. You might be wondering how something like this could ever get passed. There was opposition to the Acerbo Law, particularly from the Socialists, but nobody really cared what they thought. And it seems that many of the non-Socialist parties thought that by working with the Fascists, 
they would probably be able to keep their power and influence inside the government. So, better to get on board with the new regime, the new popular guys, early and make a friend than throw all of your potential influence out the window and make a new enemy. Also, there were armed fascist guards in the parliamentary chamber while this passed, so that might have had something to do with it. And, speaking of armed goons influencing votes, the election of 1924. The next Italian election happened under the Acerbo law, and the election of 1924 probably was not a fair or straightforward one. So, recall those various fascist squads that had been wandering up and down the Italian peninsula, intimidating people, setting things on fire, killing people, that sort of thing? Well, they're still around. It's not like they've folded up their black shirts and their truncheons and put them in a box and said, we're done with that now. Nope. In 1924, plenty of those guys showed up at polling stations to intimidate potential anti-fascists. This could take on all kinds of forms. Yes, beating people, yelling at them, passive-aggressive comments. But also, just being there was a form of intimidation. These guys had a reputation, after all. Uh, one of the things that I did not mention last episode, uh, it was probably the most famous means of torture by the black shirts. That wasn't beating. It wasn't some elaborate medieval torture device. It wasn't some, like, weird James Bond torture situation. No, the thing that the black shirts did that a lot of folks were really scared of was forcible ingestion of castor oil. These guys didn't just inflict pain with clubs, torches, and guns. They could also make you feel pain on the inside. Bonus of torturing somebody with castor oil? It doesn't leave a mark. So when these guys showed up at a polling place and just stood there, looking scary and obvious and authoritarian, a lot of folks were rightly intimidated. In 1924, plenty of anti-fascists were, shall we say, disincentivized from going to the voting booth, or, even if they did, had their votes tossed out, or were made to vote a certain way. Now, it seems crazy that the black shirts were able to get away with this. Having armed men showing up at polling stations and being menacing is not the sort of thing that marks a functional democracy. But, like I mentioned last episode, plenty of Italian conservative liberals were just fine with violent repression of socialists. So it's not like all of the non-fascists were united here, or cared about what happened to other different groups of non-fascists. But not only that, as Prime Minister, Mussolini appointed himself as the Minister of the Interior, which meant that he was the main authority over Italy's police forces at the time, and the guy in charge of all of the law enforcement that could have and should have clamped down on all of this pro-Mussolini violence was Benito Mussolini. And that was not going to happen. Checked and balanced, he was not. We'll never know how much the role of voter suppression played in the election of 1924. After all, it's hard to document people getting spooked at a polling place and walking away. But it almost certainly played a large role, because after that election, the Acerbo law turned out to not even be necessary. The new fascist party gained over two-thirds of the seats in Parliament. Probably not fairly, having their guys at the polling places assured that they won, and they won by a lot. Probably the most prominent politician to say anything about all this voter suppression and shadiness by the fascists in 1924 was a socialist member of Parliament named Giacomo Mattiotti. 
whose name I'm probably pronouncing wrong. Mattioti had first been elected to Parliament in 1919, uh, in the first of what had been known as the Two Red Years, and had been successfully re-elected in 1921 and 1924. After the 1924 elections, he requested that they be annulled. After all, voter suppression ensured that the election had not been fair or free. And, by the way, this wasn't the only time that Mattioti had denounced a fascist. He'd been writing about and speaking about violence and intimidations by the black shirts for years. So, immediately after 1924, one of the most prominent anti-fascists in Italy is saying, this wasn't a real election, we all know that this is a result of voter suppression, we all know that they kept socialists away from the polls, we all know that the two-thirds the fascists claim to have is not legitimate, and a few days later, Mattioti was dead. Blackshirts kidnapped him and stabbed him in the face with a carpenter's file. Five fascists were arrested, three of them were convicted, and then King Victor Emmanuel gave them amnesty after their convictions. Now, the Mattioti murder is the one moment where it did seem that Mussolini could have fallen. We don't have hard evidence to know if he had direct involvement with the Mattioti murder, but it was his followers who carried it out, and they were acting in the same spirit of violence that had propelled him to power. Mussolini's career was suddenly in crisis. He started to look a little less invulnerable. There were calls for him to resign, and in June of 1924, 150 government officials walked out of the Italian Chamber of Deputies as a show of opposition against Mussolini. It was a move known as the Aventine Secession, a reference to a Roman plebeian protest in 494 BCE. And these Aventine secessionists were leading cry for either Mussolini to resign willingly or for the king to remove him. And for a while, the public was with them. The tide of politics turned against Mussolini for a moment. And this is so frustrating for somebody like me to read about, by the way, not a fascist, because this seemed to be an opportunity for the anti-fascist. This seemed to be the place where they really could have made something happen. It was not to be, though. Obviously, Mussolini did not resign willingly. Also, King Victor Emmanuel did not demand his resignation. We don't know why. Victor Emmanuel was famously taciturn. He didn't really give good interviews, and apparently his diary has very little in it relating to politics. Maybe he just wanted to avoid a civil war that he thought would happen if he forced Mussolini to leave office. But in any case, the monarchy was an institution albeit an anachronistic one, which could have stood in the way of tyranny. It failed to do so. The anti-fascist forces that had walked out of the Chamber of Deputies, the Aventine Secession, they were not able to keep public opinion on their side. Though a little later in that year, Mussolini did have to deal with an attempted coup inside his fascist party, and he was able to shut that down as well. After the election of 1924, he has a gigantic, albeit ill-gotten majority in Parliament, he has dealt with a crisis that could have derailed his career. Seriously, this was murder. He probably collaborated in somebody's murder, and that was not a career ender for him. He had shut down opposition on the left and on the right, and in January of 1925, Mussolini gave a speech to Parliament denouncing anti-fascist and also clarifying that he, and he alone, was the leader of the fascist party. The speech of January 1925 is now pretty widely regarded as the beginning of real dictatorship in Italy. It's honestly a convoluted, somewhat contradictory speech, and characteristic of Mussolini, it's totally without nuance. I'm going to quote it here at length, 
because it's one of the most important things he ever said in his career. After this, he basically goes full dictator. Of his alleged involvement in Matteotti's murder, he says, quote, After such success, that is, success in the election of 1924, how could I, unless I were struck by madness, think of committing a crime, or even giving the slightest, silliest affront to a foe whom I had respected because he possessed a certain courage that at times resembled my own courage and my own stubbornness in upholding my points of view, unquote. The stenographer, recording the speech, noted, lively applause when Mussolini said this. He followed this up by saying, quote, What should I have done? Some cricket brains demanded of me at the time cynical gestures that I did not feel like making because they were deeply repugnant to my conscience. Or should I have committed some act of force? What force? Against whom? I wanted to bring political life back to normalcy. Unquote. By the way, I think this speech really gives you a view into how Mussolini talked. Not really in full paragraphs. He's not really a thesis and supporting evidence kind of guy. What he was good at, though, was reading a room, reading a crowd, and saying, sometimes off the top of his head, whatever he thought they thought they wanted to hear. In the speech, Mussolini goes on to call the Aventine secessionist who walked out on him, who demanded he resign after the Matteotti murder. He calls them filthy and unconstitutional, and he also smears the press for every non-positive thing they had to say about him. Of the press, Mussolini said, quote, The most fantastic, most horrendous, most macabre lies were widely published in all the papers. A veritable outbreak of necrophilia took place, unquote. And of the fascist, he said, of all that they had done, all that they had been accused of, all the violence, the castor oil, the Matteotti murder, he said, quote, I now declare before this assembly and before the entire Italian people that I assume I alone full political, moral, and historical responsibility for what has happened. If more or less distorted phrases are enough to hang a man, then bring out the gallows, bring out the rope. If fascism has been nothing more than castor oil and the rubber truncheon, instead of being a proud passion of the best part of Italian youth, then I am to blame. If fascism has been a criminal association, then I am the chief of this criminal association. Unquote. Mussolini wrapped up the speech by characterizing the fascist, a fairly dominant group, a group that had gotten plenty of seats in Parliament, a group that was, in fact, intimidating people throughout Italy as victims of the anti-fascists. Really, it was the black shirts who are the aggrieved party here. How dare people call for his resignation? How dare people, how dare people wring their hands and clutch their pearls at Matteotti being murdered? Really, they all knew that it was those government officials who walked out on Mussolini demanding his resignation were the real enemies. He said, quote, People want to see their own dignity reflected in that of government, and people, even before I said it, were declaring, Enough! We have gone far enough! And why have we gone far enough? Because the Aventine sedition has a Republican background. The sedition on the part of the Aventine has resulted in a situation in which any fascist in Italy is in danger of his life. In the two months of November and December alone, 11 fascists were killed. By the way, plenty of socialists were also killed in the run-up to the March on Rome and after. And then three fires have taken place in one month. Mysterious fires. Fires in the railway system and the yards in Rome, Parma, and Florence. Once again, fascists burned plenty of socialist offices, meeting halls, 
documents, etc. They're the ones who started the fires. He goes on, You see from this situation that the sedition of the Aventine has had profound repercussions throughout the country. For this reason, the moment has come when we must say enough. When two irreducible elements are locked in a struggle, the solution is force. In history, there has never been any other solution, and there never will be. Right now, I boldly declare that the problem will be resolved. Fascism, the government, and the party are completely ready. Gentlemen, you have suffered from illusions. You thought that fascism was finished because I was restraining it, that it was dead because I was punishing it, and because I had the audacity to say so. But if I were to employ the hundredth part of the energy in unleashing it that I have used in restraining it, you would understand then. But there will be no need for this, because the government is strong and enough to break the Aventine sedition completely and definitely. The stenographer recording Mussolini's speech in Parliament noted vigorous prolonged applause. Next week, full-on Italian fascist dictatorship emerges. This is an independent ad-free podcast. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Also, do give us reviews and stars and such on iTunes. Just search for Weird History in the iTunes store. Give us a few stars, five of them. Give us reviews. That helps other people find the show. That is a very useful way that you can support this podcast. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I am also on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. 